0: what is the biggest challenge you have faced when analyzing water samples? And sort of a follow-up to that question would be, what solutions have you developed to overcome these challenges?
1: So the biggest issue with water samples is usually looking for bacteria contamination. So that's the kind of regular test everyone does with water to call it potable or drinkable, as they look for, especially fecal indicator bacteria. E. coli is the most popular test. So that's the one uh, that's done on most samples. Uh, the traditional test for that, um, it, one of the tricks is it has to be really sensitive. It, uh, the standard test procedure is a 100 milliliter sample, which is really big for people in diagnostic technologies who are used to working on, you know, like human samples and things like that. 100 milliliters is huge, but you have to test the whole 100 milliliter volume, and then you have to be able to find one or more Uh, E. coli cells in that sample that are what we call viable and culturable so that that they'll grow and be detected. And so detecting one cell in a 100 milliliter volume is a huge challenge. Now microbiology methods have been able to do that for a number of years and they do it uh, by taking advantage of culture techniques. So they'll filter the sample and put the filter onto um, um, nutrient medium and then see if anything grows on the filter. And even one bacteria cell will grow until there's hundreds of millions or billions of them in a little spot around where the first one was. Uh, And then you can detect it. So you can actually see it or look through a microscope if it's a small spot and and check that it's the kind of bacteria you're looking for. And if so, well, then that water sample fails the test. Uh, But the challenge with that is it takes at least 24 hours uh, for most of the tests to generate a spot that's big enough to see. So what we do is is we keep the really high sensitivity that we want. We want to be able to see even one single cell. The trade-off is the test is slow and needs to be done in a lab, in a sterile lab environment so that there aren't other bacteria coming in that interfere with the test. So that's kind of where testing begins uh, or where testing is when those of us who work on technologies um, get into it and so we can try to tackle some of the weaknesses of that there's the idea that you have to do it in a lab there's the idea that it takes 24 hours uh, and you know you can work on those and at the same time try to keep the cost down and uh, so in my case uh, in my group we invented a technology which is now on the market from a company called Tech.PDS. So there I do my sales pitch. Um, And uh, so what we did was come up with an instrument that can do the measurement. And we still grow the bacteria in a culture So our test to detect a single cell takes about 14 hours. It can vary a little bit. Before we declare a sample absolutely negative for, say, E. coli bacteria, we wait 18 hours. So it's only a tiny bit faster than the conventional test. But the big advantage is it's done in an instrument, so you don't have to do it in the lab. So you can plop that instrument down in any uh, water facility that's purifying water or at a place where people use the water. Uh, you can throw the sample in and the test starts right away. It's really easy to use. So that gave us quite a bit of advantages. And, and there's a, a global market for that technology. They're selling lots of instruments and tests around the world. Um, but we haven't overcome all of the limitations. We've only overcome the lab limitation. and so a real opportunity for new technologies, uh, including using molecular techniques and and other biotechnologies, is to try to get that test to be way, way faster. Now, if you look in the literature, you'll see hundreds of tests out there that research groups are working on and reporting results on. Actually, it's probably thousands of tests. Uh, And they're definitely making them faster. So this PCR method or this LAMP method or some other fancy new method is, you know, detecting things in 20 minutes or an hour or two hours. Um, But the challenge is most of those are giving up on some aspect of that microbiology test. So it's not as reliable. Maybe it can't see a single cell or it can't test a whole 100 milliliter sample. Uh, There's some other limitation. And what happens when you try to go to market as a drinking water test is the US EPA and other regulatory bodies, including the provinces across Canada, will say, if you can't see a single cell in 100 milliliters, we're not interested we'll keep using the tests that we use currently, or other tests that can do that. So you come in saying, well, we can't see one cell, we can only see 100, and we can't test 100 milliliters, we can only test 10. Isn't that good enough for for, some tests? And the answer will be no for drinking water. There may be other markets. But the drinking water market is so big compared to the other bacteria testing markets that there, it's, you know, it's really the one everyone wants to get to. So that's the challenge. Get back to that single cell test. Make it just as reliable as the microbiology methods. But can you do it outside a lab and in way less than 18 hours?
0: Thank you. That was really interesting and in detailed. Thank you.
1: So probably a longer answer than you want for a podcast. No, no. That's oh, that was <laughs> but off a, the top uh, of my head, that's my introduction to this topic for anybody.
0: <laughs> no, that was a perfect response. That was really good. Thank you. Out of curiosity, um, the testing, um, because it's one cell in 100 milliliters of water, is that because of like the health consequences? Like why is why is that the parameter?
1: Yeah. So E. coli is a fecal indicator. So uh, if, there's, if there's an E. coli cell, one E. coli cell in your 100 milliliter sample, that means you've got a significantly higher risk of the sample having fecal contamination. So the thing that's gonna make you sick may not be E. coli. In fact, usually it's not E. coli. It, it might be a, uh, a parasite like uh, Cryptosporidium or Giardia. It might be a virus like Neurovirus. Uh, you know, it could be some other bacteria. But uh, if it also comes from fecal sources most of the time, then the indicator principle says if there's one E. coli detectable in there, you've got a high risk of all those other things as well. And that's why we use that as the cutoff. Again, it's a really simple test. If you could do a test for some of those other pathogens specifically, uh, that might also have a market but you're gonna to have to be down in that single organism range for it to be useful or comparable alongside the E. coli test.
0: Um, are there other, just a follow-up question, are there other, I guess, um, principal bacteria that you look for besides E. coli? I know COVID was one of them, but are there other more common ones that you would look for daily and um, wastewater?
1: Um, so in in drinking water, E. coli is the main test. Mm-hmm. In some situations, you may also do a test for either fecal coliform, which is another class of bacteria. Uh, there's a test for total coliform bacteria that gets done. Uh, it's not exactly the same as the E. coli test, but it's uh, also very useful. And occasionally, people do a test for another group of bacteria called Enterococcus. Those are the main water quality tests. Uh, And uh, for wastewater, uh, it's the same thing. Those are the main bacteria or bacteria groups that people test for in drinking water and in wastewater. Then when you have very particular applications, you might go after something else. So we test for COVID virus or the SARS-CoV-2 virus in wastewater but that's specifically to inform public health so they can estimate the number of cases that are in the population uh, that contribute to that wastewater in that sewer shed as we say. So that's a very specific thing and there's a reason we test the uh, test for the SARS-CoV-2 virus for that application. Um, Otherwise there aren't any routine virus tests that are done on either drinking water or wastewater, which is interesting. It's, uh, um, do I call it controversial? It's certainly an interesting topic. So if you do hear about people testing for viruses in either drinking water or wastewater, normally it's part of a a, uh, research project. It's not something that's done routinely as part of regulations the way the E. coli or the coliform tests are.
2: Does the um, protocol for measuring or detecting viral contaminants in water samples differ a lot from the way that you check for bacteria?
1: Um, It it depends on the bacteria test. Uh, Certainly the way we do it, it's different. Um, There's a a kind of a related story. So uh, there certainly are situations where uh, people use different technologies. Um, but, uh, let me back this up for a second. Um, so we do our bacteria testing by culture methods because we want to match those US EPA and province of Ontario drinking water requirements for certifying that drinking water is safe to drink. And uh, right now, there's no approved, say, PCR or molecular diagnostic or, or uh, DNA-based diagnostic for that, for the drinking water test. Um, on the other hand, when we test for the viruses in wastewater, uh, we do that through RT-qPCR, uh, and that is, uh, I think thats is the—I think—that's the only method currently. No, it's not the only method. A few, a couple other methods just came out in the literature in the last uh, in the last little while. Um, that's the method being used by almost every lab that's doing routine monitoring for the uh, SARS-CoV-2 viruses. They're using RT-qPCR or some other PCR variation like digital drop PCR or something like that. Um, We could define any of those terms if you need, (laughs) let me know. Um, so, uh, So that's normal. Now you can use PCR to detect E. coli in samples. But it's not normally used in either drinking water or wastewater. And the reason for that is when we're tracking E. coli, uh, especially in drinking water, but also in wastewater, we usually want to know about the intact viable E. coli cells that are there. And the reason is we're constantly treating the water. So if you uh, treat water by adding a bit of chlorine, and we do that in drinking water, obviously before we drink it, so somewhere along the treatment chain, chlorine is being added, usually at a few places. Uh, Even wastewater, before uh, here in Kingston, we release our wastewater after it's treated out into Lake Ontario. Before we put our wastewater into Lake Ontario, we add lots of chlorine. And again, we're trying to kill off bacteria, viruses, other microorganisms in there that we don't want at a high concentration in the lake where people are swimming and fish live and so on. Um, The challenge is when you add chlorine to a sample to treat organisms like bacteria and viruses, it doesn't quickly destroy all the DNA or RNA. So if you're using a PCR test for E. coli, you might think you see E. coli in a drinking water sample or a wastewater sample, but if it's been disinfected by chlorinating or even some other treatments like uh, ultraviolet treatment, uh, you may still see a DNA signature for a while. There are modified methods that try to clean that up. Uh, You can do pre-addition of reagents that scrounge up or inactivate detection of free DNA that's floating around that might have come from now dead cells Uh, So there are ways to clean that up, but it makes the test a lot more complicated. So there's all these trade-offs, and because of those trade-offs, we haven't seen a PCR-based test make it all the way to being approved for drinking water testing, for example. So again, if you do see people reporting uh, PCR results for drinking water or wastewater testing, it's usually part of a research project, not routine monitoring. Uh, and then the SARS-CoV-2 virus comes along and we start monitoring it in wastewater and it's kind of an exception. Uh, in that case, you know, we aren't asking a question, is the virus still alive? It probably isn't in the wastewater. So we don't mind that we're just detecting uh, RNA fragments or RNA in virus fragments that are no longer viable. Okay, uh, we're trying to use it to indicate whether the virus was being put in there by the human population. So, different applications, different reasons why the the molecular diagnostic methods like PCR might work, or why they might not be suitable, uh, depending on what you're trying to do with the sample.
0: So, I had a follow-up question to that. Um, Since you've mostly been working with organic contaminants, like, or living contaminants, you can say, uh, what would you say is... The main difference from inorganic contaminants like toxic metals, uh, heavy metals, or um, on the other hand, would it ever be, would you run into EPA regulations or other limitations if you introduced some kind of organic into water that people will drink later down in the line?
1: so I guess if you're introducing an organic, do you mean as part of water treatment or as part of your test?
2: Um,
0: as part of water treatment.
1: Okay, so yeah, any, any material that you're going to add to water as part of a treatment process has to go through a rigorous safety testing uh, protocol. Um, so there, there will be, uh, um, in the US there'll be FDA, oversight of anything that you're going to add to water Uh, in the water treatment side, there's NSF oversight and there's a couple other regulatory bodies that would look at that as well. Plus anything that you add to water even in a drinking water treatment plant eventually is going to go out through the wastewater plant. So even the environmental protection agency will want to look at that. So all of the reagents that are typically added to water as part of treatment have been thoroughly studied in terms of making sure what you're doing is safe and, and not going to affect anybody. Uh, if we came along and wanted to introduce a new material for testing water, um, sorry, if we, if we came along and wanted to add a new material for treating water, we absolutely would have to go through the same kind of exhaustive study of the safety of the material we were adding. What is it? How safe is it? Uh, you know, is it toxic? What other effects does it have? And even all the way through to uh, NSF, which is the National Sanitation Foundation, um, you know, they look at things like does it affect the plumbing? So you might add something that's not directly toxic, but if it, you know, affects the the plumbing uh, in in uh, the pipes as the water's flowing through, uh, there may be other reasons why you have to be careful about what you add. So uh, all of that would have to be done. Uh, If you're doing water treatment by a spot technology that doesn't add anything to the water, so I think of things like new filters, new kinds of filtration technologies and things that people propose, um, you would still have to go through an assessment where you'd need to make sure the water coming through and out the other side of that. uh, You're not introducing some changes that somehow make that water unsafe. Um, So again, uh, if you look at filtration systems that are licensed for use in drinking water they'll all have NSF certification standards on them, meaning that kind of testing has been done and, and uh, at least to the degree of the regulations everybody's happy that they're safe to use.
0: Yeah, I just want to do a good pause in case anyone <laughs> needed any follow-up <laughs> questions. Um, I was uh, reading your little bio on the Queen's like department website um, and it was talking about your work with fluorescence and filtering as well. So I was wondering if maybe you would discuss kind of the advantages of using fluorescent detection versus like a, a chemical indicator, like how um, like the pros and cons of that.
1: Sure, um, yeah, I've worked at different methods including with fluorescence detection for a while. Um, so fluorescence is, is another kind of chemical detection system, but uh, fluorescent molecules are very special ones that will absorb UV or um, blue or green light and then emit light of longer wavelengths. Um, it provides a way of detecting an optical signal over what we call a dark background signal because you filter out the excitation light and so that provides a really sensitive way of doing optical detection. So it just means if you put an instrument together and want to detect um, detect the presence of a chemical with an instrument system, if the chemical happens to be fluorescent, or in our case, if you can design it so that it's fluorescent, uh, often you can do detection at much lower concentrations more reliably than if you use other optical measurements like absorbance or color. Um, so that that's why I've always looked at fluorescence as something that was interesting when we could use it. So in our drinking water E. coli detection technology that I mentioned, um, we have designed the culture medium in that so that as the E. coli are growing, uh, they are metabolizing a molecule that's in there to produce a fluorescent product. And so the instrument that we put that sample into is uh, monitoring fluorescence as a way of detecting the presence of the E. coli. We could have set it up to look for a color change and used a different kind of molecule. Uh, But I know uh, under normal conditions, we would have had to wait to get to a much higher concentration of the colored molecule. Whereas with the fluorescent molecule, we can see it at a really low concentration. So that just lets us get the detection to be as rapid as possible.
0: Awesome, thank you. I know we have, um, because we're on on the free version of Zoom, (laughs) as students are, so we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, If anyone has like burning questions, this would be a good time, or like the questions from our list, this is a good time to like throw those in just as we wrap up.
2: Sure, yeah. So one of the things that, especially us as students who are kind of making our way into this field of dealing with water and also with um, bioengineered or genetically engineered organisms. Um, one of the things we have to face a lot of the times is considering the ethical implications of what we're doing and um, kind of measuring how our proposed solution plays into like this larger network of, of social regulations of ethical implications. So how do you um, go about measuring the efficacy or, or like, you know, the ethical value that your work Um, provides
1: Um, do you mean ethics in terms of what we're trying to do like declare water to be safe or do you mean ethics in terms of people's information like privacy concerns
2: Um, I think both I think for clearing for cleaning up water sources I think that is ethical in and of itself but in terms of introducing newer technologies and also like you mentioned about making sure that people are informed about what's going on with their water
1: so uh, with new technologies we Uh, I got into the business for water testing um, uh, through drinking water testing. And there, the, the ethical side of it is much more straightforward because the testing is regulated. So if we set ourselves up with the... Uh, knowing that we're going to meet the regulatory requirements and we are going to put our tests through assessment by regulatory agencies, then uh, their oversight is kind of covering the ethical concerns. This does come up in the business in general, because I have seen lots of people with experimental technologies that I know don't really meet the requirements. For uh, you know, for say detecting single E. coli cells and in, in samples and so on, and uh, um, occasionally they will advertise them as being suitable for testing drinking water, and uh, and so there is an ethical consideration in terms of making a technology wanting to test it, especially if you're trying to sell it, uh, and making sure that that the claims you put on your technology really, really match the capabilities of the technology and are carefully worded in some way that it sounds like you're doing all of the testing required for a particular situation, when in fact your technology can't really do that. Uh, And so, you know, there are examples out there. Um, We sort of get into a Theranos type scenario when when you get through it. For those of you who are familiar with that story, um, that's the same kind of thing. What Theranos did in diagnostic testing, we will see other people do in water testing. They're reporting technologies that are seeing something about water quality changing, but they're not really telling you the water is going from safe to unsafe or unsafe to safe. Um, so we really watch for new kinds of technology, uh, particle detection methods, other optical detection methods, where if they really don't know exactly what their system is detecting, then we watch for an alignment of the claims of, of what the technology can do with what it's really doing. So that that's uh, sort of the the important thing about you know, the ethical consideration of developing new technologies. So making sure what you claim your technology can do really matches what it does. And obviously there's even public safety uh, considerations in there. It's not just about selling something and you know ripping people off in terms of getting their money from them, but you can actually put lives at danger by having people doing water testing with equipment that's not really capable of doing what they think it can do or what they've been told it can do. Um, So that's that aspect of ethics. And and in the case of my projects, everything's gone through regulatory approval. So, you know, we've covered that off. So a third party is telling us our technology can or can't do uh, what we claim it can do. And uh, a lot of the customers we try to sell to like drinking water plants are very discriminating customers. So they are going to look for these assurances that the technology works from third parties, or they're going to want to do their own pilot studies in-house uh, before they will simply accept what we tell them the technology can do. So that helps a lot with the ethical side of things as well. So engaging third-party laboratories to certify or validate that your technology works is, is a good idea. Um, On the privacy side, this is something we've run into with the wastewater program. Um, We're doing testing uh, at wastewater treatment plants. Uh, The results that we get tend to apply to groups of, I'll say 5,000 or more people at a time. So we haven't run into too much of the privacy issues. We have run into issues where we're generating data for communities and the public health people in those communities may be concerned about how the data moves around. So we have uh, data oversight and uh, uh, and uh, protocols on who can release data, who can publish it, and so on. Uh, so that comes up. But we have also, uh, along with the other groups doing the SARS-CoV-2 monitoring, we've started going into manholes in communities. Um, just today, we started uh, working at a long-term care home here in Kingston. We have done student residences. Um, You know, and so we can say, oh, this residence has uh, people with, who are COVID infected in it and this other residence doesn't. Now we're getting down to blocks of, you know, maybe one or 200 people. Um, There's still not so much privacy concern when the group's that large, but definitely the uh, information for student residences goes to Queen's University and does not get published publicly. Uh, the way our, our wastewater plant does uh, because they, you know, they don't want people talking about this residence building versus that residence building and so on. Um, so that's, uh, so we do run into those issues. And then there's a question of, as we go further out through the sewer shed, if we start randomly plunking testing equipment down in or sampling equipment down manholes around the city, you know, we could eventually be testing, uh, you know, one street or one house And uh, so those kinds of uh, aspects of privacy come into the ethics discussions as well. So we have an ethics review uh, uh, panel who oversees that, and we work uh, also with the public health department on all of these projects. They have their own ethics uh, considerations as well. So we try to go through the regular ethics bodies and treat it like medical information at that point. So it's as though that person went into the hospital and got a test done. You know How is that information protected? We try to keep the information protected in the same way and to go through the same groups before uh, it gets redistributed to anybody else or used in larger analysis and so on. Um, but that, that one is more complicated than we were thinking when we first got into this kind of wastewater testing. So uh, those are interesting things that can come up.